Welcome to the Compass Podcast, featuring Chris Shandro and the Compass team. We hope this message is just for you. Well, I thank you for joining me. I am Chris. I'm the pastor at Compass, and uh, I'm just delighted to have you with me. Now, a little over a month ago, Tyree Nichols, an unarmed black man, was beaten to death by police in Memphis. Four days before that, Keenan Anderson, another unarmed black man who had gone to the police for help after being in a car accident, he died after being tased by those same officers. And these two deaths didn't just happen four days apart. They happened in the first seven days of the new year. They happened at a season when people are hopeful for change, but in that season, an all too familiar occurrence brings us back to reality. And the reality is that the killings of unarmed black people have been happening for generations. We just happen to have more cameras now that are capturing it. And in spite of the national attention that, that was brought to this issue by the killing of George Floyd in 2020, the data shows that since then, the number of black people killed by police has actually increased over the last two years. Now, the response to all of this by the American Evangelical Church has been a little bit of a mixed bag. And while there are many who con who've condemned the violence in these situations, many more have been unwilling to criticize both the systems and the structures that seem to support the racial disparity and the oppression that the black community is suffering under. Some evangelicals not only won't acknowledge the problem of racism in our country, but actually seem to be actively attacking anyone who tries to draw attention to it. I mean, last week, the Florida State Legislature basically banned the teaching of historical racism at a college level, and they did it with the overwhelming support of evangelical Christians. And the divide within the church between those who see the need for, for social justice in the areas of, of race, poverty, minority rights, and those who don't has actually gotten wider. Even the term social justice is divisive in the church, with some who think the term social justice is a key part of the gospel and others who think social justice is actually a perversion of the gospel. This problem exists in the church I think because we tend to see justice and oppression through the eyes of religion rather than through the eyes of basic humanity. And so today, because current events again bring us here, I want to look at these issues through the eyes of Jesus. And today, I want us to imagine what Jesus would think of these events and how he would respond to them if he were seeing them and experiencing them with us. And so to do that, we need to take a look at where Jesus came from to understand his life. And so to start, we need to understand that Jesus lived his entire life under Roman oppression. 60 years before he was born, Rome conquered all of Israel. And the Jewish people, including Jesus, lived as subjects under a Roman government and under Roman economic systems. Those systems created a massive wealth gap. Around 10% of the population were the wealthy elite. And they owned all of the wealth. And the remaining 90% of the people, they lived at a poverty and subsistence level. In Jesus' world, you were either rich or poor. There was no middle class. And there was no way to move up. If you were born poor, you would always be poor. And so would your children. And so would their children. 
Jesus was one of these working poor people from Nazareth, a little farming community that was uh, in Galilee, which is about 60 miles from Jerusalem. Like his father, Jesus was a construction worker, a builder. He probably worked building a new Roman city in the area called Sephoris because that's where the work would have been. And laborers like Jesus followed work wherever it could be found. So Jesus was probably an itinerant worker with all of the challenges that came with that. But being one of the working poor wasn't just difficult because they had to work so hard to survive. There were social challenges as well. See, the first century world had this deeply ingrained culture of honor. Having honor was everything in society, but there was no honor in being poor. See, the Jewish people, they viewed wealth with kind of religious lens, that wealth was a blessing from God. And, and Romans viewed freedom as the highest honor. But that freedom only came with financial resources that allowed you to live free. And so poor workers like Jesus, they had no honor because they had no wealth, they had no blessing from God, they had no freedom, and they had no way to change it. And this was life for Jesus in the world that he grew up in. This is where he came from. This is who he was. And this is important. This is where God chose Jesus to come from. God chose for Jesus to be raised as a poor person in an oppressed nation with no honor and with no real way to work his way out of it. Jesus experienced the oppression of a people whose land was taken away from them. He experienced economic inequality and he experienced prejudice against his 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 social standing from his own people. And all of this came with no real hope for change, either personally or generationally. And this helps us to understand one key thing, that Jesus knew injustice because he lived injustice. Jesus saw injustice inflicted on the people that he loved. And when we see Jesus in the true context of his world, his life doesn't sound too different from the experience of many people in our world, even in our country. And this context is important because it helps to frame Jesus' ministry for us, why he did what he did. And there's one thing that we're going to look today in John chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 13. It says that it was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. So we see Jesus entering the temple to celebrate the Passover feast with his disciples. This is the beginning of his ministry, according to John. But to really get what's happening, there are some things that we need to flesh out and understand. First, all Jewish men over the age of 20 were required to pay an annual temple tax. It was a requirement. You could think of it as a required tithe that kept the temple in good order. But because the Jewish religion was so hardcore against pagan idolatry, they would only accept Jewish coins for this tax. Roman coins had an image of Caesar, and in Rome, Caesar was Lord. As a result, because of his image on the coin, the temple required ceremonially clean Jewish coins for the temple tax. They wouldn't accept anything else. So money changers were required. People who would swap foreign coin for ceremonially accepted Jewish coin, and they would do it for a small fee. The problem was that those fees didn't always stay small. Because thousands of people were coming through the temple every year, changing money was really profitable. 
And unsurprisingly, it resulted in corruption and huge fees, particularly on the poor who are the least likely to be able to afford those fees. So that's what Jesus sees. And then in addition to this, animals were required to be offered in sacrifice according to Jewish law. But it was really difficult to transport animals if you were traveling 60 miles from Galilee to Jerusalem. So a lucrative business of selling animals for sacrifice kind of sprung up with the sellers gouging people, charging these massive prices for animals, because where else were they going to go to get the animals for sacrifice? I mean, it's the same reason that a bottled water costs $5 when you, after you go through security at the airport. You have to pay whatever they're asking because you can't bring your own water, and where else are you going to go get it? So, in addition to Roman oppression that all the Jewish people lived under, there was injustice coming from the Jewish religious leadership who also just happened to be part of the elite 10% of society. So we see another institutionalized system of oppression that Jesus grew up under. And this one took root in the, the religious structures, with the result being that it limited access to the center of Jewish life, power, and religion, the temple. You only had access to God and to the temple if you could afford it. This was Jesus's life. And again, I want you to see that Jesus understands the oppressed because he was oppressed. So when he went into the temple, what did Jesus do in response? Look at this in verse 15. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and he chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers' coins all over the floor and turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. I want you to understand this. This was the beginning of Jesus's ministry, according to John. He didn't have a ton of followers yet. He has no army of people behind him. But Jesus had had enough. And he started flipping tables. It's strange. This doesn't sound very Jesus-like, does it? Not very peaceful and loving. Not like the heart of God. Or is it? I mean, look at Psalm 82, 3 through 4. God says, give justice to the poor and the orphan. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and helpless. Deliver them from the grasp of evil people. And then Isaiah 1.17 says this, learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. If you think that flipping tables doesn't sound very Jesus-like, get this. Here's the thing. God cares deeply about injustice and those who are hurt by it. And this was obvious to Jesus who grew up on these scriptures. He also grew up surrounded by the very people who these scriptures referred to, the orphan, the oppressed, and the destitute. Jesus's mother was a widow. His family was poor. He knew God's heart and he knew the people who God's heart was for. And God's heart is not for religious observance, but for justice in the world. I mean, look at Jesus confront the Pharisees, the elite of his day in Luke eleven forty two. He says, what sorrow awaits you Pharisees, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, yet you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. God's heart is that his people seek justice. 
It's clear that Jesus was outraged by injustice. And when he flipped the unjust tables that limited people's access to God, tables that oppressed people and kept them pushed down with no way out, Jesus was actually perfectly demonstrating the heart of God. Our story continues in verse 18. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. See, in the minds of the Jewish religious leaders, Jesus had no authority to come into their temple and demand justice for the poor, to demand change. Jesus wasn't elite. He had no wealth. He has no honor to leverage. Thing is, they didn't expect Jesus to do a miracle when they told him to. They would have written it off even if he had. What they were really saying was this. They're saying, Jesus, you don't have the authority to change how this institution works. And if you think you do, then try and prove it. And that's how institutionalized injustice works. Those who suffer from it never have access to the power, authority, or access that can change the system. And in the eyes of the elite, Jesus had no authority to change anything. But in his reply, Jesus lays out his ultimate response to oppression and injustice. Look at this in verse 19. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What they exclaimed? It's taken 46 years to build this, build this temple and you, can't re and you can rebuild it in three days? Now, this is a confusing thing for Jesus to say a little bit. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And that's the proof of my authority. The Jewish leaders didn't understand what he was saying. And honestly, neither did his disciples until much later. Because look at, look at how John caps off this whole story, kind of translating what Jesus said in verse 21. But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he'd said this. And they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. I think it's interesting that when John wrote down the story of Jesus's visceral response to oppression, it started with Jesus flipping the tables of injustice. But the story ended with his death and resurrection. John put these two things, these two events together, which is important because... The ultimate solution to injustice is the cross. And sometimes the path to the cross involves flipping some tables. Our ultimate problem, our human problem is sin. And the only solution to that is the cross. But that doesn't absolve us from dealing with injustice in our world. We are kingdom people. And the kingdom of God is not far off someday. It's right here and now. And while our world is not going to be totally perfected until Jesus returns. We can't just sit and wait for him while there are orphans and widows of our world who are being oppressed and marginalized. The events of this story, they happened at the start of Jesus' ministry, okay? So three years before his death on a cross and resurrection. And even though Jesus knew the cross was his ultimate act of putting the world to right at the end of his ministry— he still confronted injustice when he saw it at the beginning. Because living like Jesus lived means that, that even though the, the cross is the ultimate solution down the road, we don't just sit on our hands and wait for it. 
Living like Jesus means that we flip the tables of oppression and injustice when we see it while we are on the journey to our ultimate destination, just like Jesus did. The fact of the matter is there are some people we can't reach unless we're willing to flip some tables for them. It would be cruel to offer the gospel to a starving person and not give him food as well. It would be wrong to offer the gospel to a sick woman and and neglect to care for her as best as we could. And in the same way, it is unjust to offer the gospel to the oppressed and not seek to right the injustices that they live with. So what do we do? Well, I have a few suggestions as I wrap up. First, we can listen to those asking for help. Because you don't know what you don't know. You don't really know what it's like to be black in America. You don't really know what it's like to leave your home, your your home country in fear for your children to try and give them a better life somewhere else in a country you don't know. You don't know what it's like to have the church exclude you, not just because of what you do or some perceived sin, but because of who you are deep down at your core. And you won't until you are willing to quiet your own certainty for a moment and listen. So first, listen. Second, put yourself in their shoes. Make a genuine attempt to put aside your preconceptions and try to understand what it's really like to be someone else. I mean, would you really feel any differently than they do if you had lived their life? If we're going to love our neighbors as ourselves, it requires us to give their life experience the same weight and importance that we give our own. Third, make the main things the main things. Jesus deconstructed more than 600 religious rules in the Jewish scriptures down to two. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I know there are a lot of things that are really important to us. Our politics, our religious ideology, our our doctrinal interpretations. But love is the main thing. And any time ideology wins out over love, the gospel loses. And so does everyone else. And then finally, ask God to change things. Pray. Ask God to move. Ask God to help you understand. Ask him him to reveal to you what tables may need to be flipped and what that looks like in your life. See, our biggest problem is not necessarily that people are evil, but that our perceptions are flawed. And when we can't or, or refuse to see injustice, we're helpless to change it. So ask God to open your eyes. Ask him to show you what you can change in your world and in your heart. And may we be a church that's filled with people who seek justice. And may that justice be defined by Jesus, not by our culture or our politics or even our own desires. And may we never forget that Jesus was oppressed and marginalized. Jesus was the least of these. And when we seek justice for the least of these, we do it to Jesus. And finally, may the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. A kingdom of justice, a kingdom of hope, a kingdom where things are made right for everyone. And while that kingdom is both 
now and someday, may in the now we see the premium importance that God puts on justice for the people who he loves so dearly. So may we listen. May we seek to understand what it's like to live someone else's life. May we make the main things the main things, which is love. May we ask God, may we pray and seek his change in our world and his change in our hearts as we become a people who seek justice. I'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us at Compass. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions about Compass or this message, contact us at our website, www.compassbn.com.